Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Your Attention is the Rarest and Purest Form of Generosity by Justine Toe. Your attention is a fragile thing. Trouble is, we only learn this after it's been frayed, as realised by anyone who's ever emerged bleary-eyed and regretful from watching one too many Instagram reels. Not that our inability to look away is entirely on us, In an attention economy, trillions of dollars are to be made through exploiting our attention. It's why some, like social critic Matthew Crawford, call upon us to preserve the attentional commons by treating attention as a public good, like fresh air and clean water. His point, let's use the not-so-renewable resource of our attention wisely. Be careful about what you pay attention to. If you struggle with sustained focus, and given corporate assaults upon it daily, how could you not, then it's even more vital that you, well, attend to the life and work of Simone Weil. The French philosopher, labour activist and not-quite-Catholic mystic wrote passionately about the importance of attention and even the miracle of its occurrence when directed deeply and lovingly towards another person. Reading they against the chronic distraction of our times, the real product flogged by that attention economy, makes clear that even 80 years after her death, they couldn't be more relevant. Vey's life was short and difficult, often by choice. She grew up the younger sister of math prodigy André Vey in a comfortably middle-class, non-observant Jewish family in Paris. She had a first-rate education that set her up for a fairly cushy life as a teacher. But an encounter with then-classmate Simone de Beauvoir suggests a saint-in-waiting quality to the teenage Vey. Ever the idealist, she desired to feed the world's starving millions. De Beauvoir, who recalls the exchange in her biography, was disinterested. Finding the meaning of mankind's existence was more important. She declared, It's easy to see you've never gone hungry, retorted Vey. They weren't empty words either. They often did go hungry, out of solidarity with suffering others. Indeed, her refusal to eat more than her French compatriots under occupation likely hastened her death. But for they, ideas needed to be lived and experienced. Her determined attempt to identify deeply with the plight of working people meant she put herself forward for repetitive, fatiguing factory work or manual labour on farms. Even though sickly and clumsy, she often became a liability. There were other misadventures too. Frustrated attempts to assist the Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War and later the French Resistance during World War II. Few of these endeavours were fruitful, but they was nothing if not committed to doing something, anything. In 
even if the outcome was uncertain and one wasn't exactly fit for the task. It is in vague writing about attention that we glimpse perhaps something of what drove her to put herself at the frequently extreme disposal of other people and causes she fervently believed in. In a now famous essay on school studies, they makes a startling claim. The point of school is to teach us to pray, by which she meant to attend deeply to whatever is before you. The idea was that students would apply themselves to an endeavour that wouldn't reveal its secrets so easily. As they saw things, wrestling with algebra and trying to follow its impossible logic simultaneously flexed and trained, if you like, our attentional muscles. Even if the equation was still impenetrable after an hour, this apparently barren effort, they declared, would still bring more light into the soul. Teaching students to persist through difficulty, she believed, would pay off far beyond the mastery of any school subject. It would, in fact, prepare people for the real business of life, paying attention to other people. Not least because, as we learn soon enough, they can be way more infuriating than maths. Even though they casts attention as prayer, God wasn't to be the singular object of our attention. The plight of our neighbours was also to fill our gaze. For they, to attend well to other people, meant making their welfare and well-being central to our concerns and bestowing on them the honour, love and dignity they were due. It meant granting them the strange compliment of being real or being a real person in the way we experience ourselves as real people and then putting our own real selves at their disposal. This is why they called attention the rarest and purest form of generosity. It required the attentive person to, in a vivid phrase borrowed from Pope Francis, remove our sandals before the sacred ground of the other. But the power of this attentive gaze goes still further. It has the power to rehumanize the dehumanized. As Vey writes, The love of our neighbour, in all its fullness, simply means being able to say to him, What are you going through? It is a recognition that the sufferer exists not only as a unit in a collection or a specimen from the social category labelled unfortunate, but as a man exactly like us who was one day stamped with a special mark by affliction. The experience of suffering and misfortune seems to exile someone from the rest of humanity, to undo them in some essential way that strips them of their humanness. They would go on to describe such a state as one of affliction, one she experienced firsthand as a factory worker. In a letter known as Spiritual Autobiography, she writes of the exhausting and gruelling nature of the work. There I received forever the mark of a slave, like the branding of the red-hot iron which the Romans put on the foreheads of their most despised slaves. Affliction, then, is the person reduced to a thing by the experience of suffering and oppression. 
But here is the transformative power of attention. It is precisely what enables someone to recognise that the afflicted other is a person exactly like us. Take, for instance, Vile's reading of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, a tale perhaps broadly familiar to some. It describes an act of unexpected and radical compassion by a Samaritan, a social and ethnic outsider, to a Jewish man, robbed and left for dead. Christian commentators often pay close attention to the attentive care the Samaritan shows to the beaten man, for them, the true test of the Samaritan's neighbourliness. But Vey has a different focus. For her, the critical moral act was the fact that the Samaritan paid attention. He stopped and looked at the man who had become less of a man and nonetheless gave his attention all the same to this humanity which is absent. Vey calls this an act of creative attention that gives our attention to what does not exist. Everything that then follows, the Samaritan pouring oil on the man's wounds, taking him to a place where he will be cared for and paying in advance for his keep, is almost beside the point because it all depended on this first act. To be a neighbour, suggests Vey, is first of all to see. Perhaps this is why Vey writes that paying attention to the suffering of another is a very rare and difficult thing. It is almost a miracle. It is a miracle. Attention, then, enacts a kind of resurrection because it can bring them almost dead back to life. The power of paying attention is that it can transform a lump of anonymous, misshapen flesh lying by the side of the road into the other person who is exactly like us, the other person who is as real as we are, the person who requires from us all the compassion we would wish to be shown if we were set upon by robbers on a lonely road. We've travelled a long way from where we started, with our difficulty focusing in an age of distraction and the all-too-familiar experience of giving our attention, which, as Vey has taught us, also means giving ourselves to things that don't always deserve it. But our own travails with attention have much to learn from Vey's account of the moral, political and spiritual charge of attention. For one, she illuminates for us the determined inattention of our time. Our entire attention economy is organised around helping us avoid the demands of other people. How many of us have retreated to the comfort of our screens to soothe our social anxiety or to numb the guilt we feel at failing to show up for people? It turns out that the loss of our focus and ability to concentrate is just the tip of the attentional iceberg. Also at stake is our ability to be present to the people we love and even to be present to ourselves and our pain. Beyond that, there are many contemporary equivalents to the man of Jesus' parable, first afflicted by suffering and then afflicted by the ease with which that suffering can be ignored. I write from Australia in the recent aftermath of a defeated referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. 
an invitation issued from the nation's first peoples to their fellow citizens to see their unique circumstances and grant them representation over policy matters directly affecting them. Lives are in the balance. The life outcomes of Aboriginal people are drastically worse than other Australian citizens. Now, to the loss of language, culture, country and pride comes a further blow. They will not be listened to either. They are not the only people we struggle to see. The lady with Alzheimer's disease, the illegal immigrant, the victim of family violence, the modern-day child slaves forced to mine cobalt to power our smartphones. It is profoundly difficult and costly for us to see them and recognise their claims upon us. To love others, as Jesus once enjoined his followers, as we love ourselves. The vulnerable have always risked being overlooked and ignored. But Ve gives us eyes to see all of this and asks that we do not look away. Those who are unhappy have no need for anything in this world, she writes, but people capable of giving them their attention. Imagine a day in the life of a beetle by Jamie Mulvaney. Imagine a day in the life of a beetle. It's easy if you try. Or is it? Last year, the late Matthew Perry allowed us a searing insight into life with a rollicking read about his very high highs and very low lows. Yet more books have been published recently on the toxicity of fame. Britney Spears is the subject of an autobiography and biography. Another simply borrows the title Toxic. John Updike wrote that fame is the mask that eats the face. Baz Luhrmann last year documented Elvis Presley's destruction in his typically kaleidoscopic way. And into this media mix, a recent exhibition shows a more innocent, intimate moment in the famed prototype of Beatlemania, intriguingly entitled Eyes of the Storm. Surely, with the Beatles predating the selfie stick and Snapchat, we'd be reliant on paparazzi. But as Sir Paul McCartney can play pretty much every musical instrument, it's not a surprise he knows how to use a camera. And so, it emerged during lockdown that he had kept a thousand previously unseen photos from 1961 to 1963. To relaunch the beautifully remodelled National Portrait Gallery, McCartney displayed a whole cache of photos. One of the criticisms of present-day photography is that it's too easy, that we retain all sorts of out-of-focus photos on our phone. McCartney had preserved all these, and although it's curated and edited, there's many photos that wouldn't normally be seen. You get the Fab Four goofing about, and also in quiet moments. There's young George looking shattered in the back of a car, and John concentrating. McCartney forgot that Lennon pulled this particular face with his finger to his lip. His song Help 
emerged a year later. He told Playboy, I was fat and depressed and I was crying out for help. They were indeed in the eye of a storm. And in the middle of the storm, we see the Beatles finding moments of joy. They land in New York for the Ed Sullivan Show, at the top of the charts and at the top of their fame. Fans chasing them down Manhattan streets, fans balancing precariously on an airport roof, and one inexplicably holds a monkey. American optimism had been battered by JFK's assassination, and the Beatles' arrival was a welcome respite. This joy became even clearer and more vivid, as McCartney switched to colour when they reached Miami. But before the colour, the songwriter in Conversation with Stanley Tucci singled out seeing a worker he snapped while they were on the train, perhaps a mirror to his own working-class roots and family. But then there are also the more explicit self-reflections. A series that struck me were McCartney's self-portraits, looking in a mirror, out of focus. McCartney said his first thought was this was the National Portrait Gallery, at least they could be in focus. But then he realised they had a warmth and a softness to them. Those of us who are not Beatles or famous also live our lives out of focus, with blind spots or a little dizzy from the storms around us and within us. Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor, before the selfie was invented, wrote about our self-perception in relation to the outside world and that we are self-interpreting animals. Since the 18th century, we've lived with an orthodoxy that we understand ourselves through self-expression, that we ourselves are the ones to define who we are and how we relate to the world even how we relate to ourselves. It's so much the norm, it might seem confronting to question it. But in an increasingly confusing world, this is an increasingly difficult way to understand ourselves. Whilst many of the Beatles' songs are about perception, King David also wrote in the Psalms about our need for an external perspective. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. What we each need is a perspective on ourselves from the outside that is warm and soft, but also in focus. What if there was a perspective on ourselves free from blind spots, a precision lens that fully sees and fully understands the essence of who we are and who we might be. Someone who sees the deleted photos and yet is completely gentle and loving in how they see us. The way we truly understand ourselves is in relation to our Creator. God shows us both what is seen and unseen. Like in these photos, God is not phased by the contrast of light and darkness and provides a way out of the storm. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The Death of Chandler Bing by James Carey
How do you end a sitcom? That, that's not a joke. For those of us who write sitcoms, it's a practical question. Every episode needs an ending. These days, every season needs an ending. And then the whole thing needs some kind of grand finale as the characters ride off into the sunset. A sitcom ending should be both surprising, but also retrospectively inevitable. That's what I tell aspiring sitcom writers. The ending of a sitcom shouldn't be a nasty shock, nor is it just the moment where the episode runs out of time or story. Casablanca is one of the all-time great endings. Rick tells Ilsa to get on the plane, and there's the business with Laszlo, Strasser and the usual suspects. I've read that the writing of the ending came fairly late in the day. The motion picture production code forbade showing a woman leaving her husband for another man. This seems restrictive, but in our hearts, we want to believe that Rick would do the decent thing. When it comes down to it, our hearts yearn for a happy ending. And if not happy, bittersweet, but mostly sweet. The ending of Matthew Perry, star of one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, is both surprising and inevitable. No one expected him to die at the age of 54, but given his problems with addiction, it is not as shocking as it might be. Perry confessed one of his greatest addictions, along with painkillers and alcohol, was to be the funniest. He needed to hear those laughs. In the HBO Max Friends reunion special, he said, To me, I felt like I was going to die if they didn't laugh, he said. All comedians feel this, but it seems that Perry felt it especially acutely. When co-star Matt LeBlanc recalled tripping over his mark and everyone on set laughed, Perry had to jump in. Because I was like, somebody's getting a laugh. I can't handle it. I need to get a laugh too. No wonder Matthew Perry was so funny as Chandler Bing. He was so determined to be the funniest. And he was. From the very first scene of the very first episode, it was clear that the planets had aligned for this actor, this show and the viewing public. Everybody loved Chandler. It was a dream character to play. A young man in his 20s who is funny because, well, he is really funny. Being funny is his thing. It's to cover over his cowardice, but he is the funny guy. Ross is the nerd, Joey is the ladies' man, Rachel is the princess, Phoebe is kooky, Monica is uptight, and Chandler is the comedian, whose lines were being written, rewritten, and perfected by a battery of writers who were among the funniest people in the English-speaking world. But Perry still had to deliver those lines, on cue, in the right order, no matter what else was going on in his life. And a lot was going on. But he coped. He was just so funny. The only evidence of his personal demons on screen was his weight loss and weight gain. He was a consistently excellent performer. In an earlier era, when more mainstream romantic comedy movies were made, Perry might have given Cary Grant a run to his money. And then maybe Alfred Hitchcock may have given him a new lease of life. But I don't think Perry has been so mourned because of his talent. 
and that he was taken from us before his time. He wasn't a River Phoenix or a Heath Ledger, whose death meant that we have been denied some truly great films that they would surely have made. Personally, I feel that way about Victoria Wood, who died aged 62, and had at least two more truly great works in her. For most people, the death of Matthew Perry was the death of Chandler Bing, and we just weren't prepared for that. Matthew Perry simply was Chandler from Friends. I've said this for a long time. When I die, I don't want Friends to be the first thing that's mentioned, he said. It's not hard to imagine Chandler making a joke out of that. One can also imagine Perry's character saying, I always figured I'd die alone in a hot tub. Whoa, did I just say that out loud? And the audience would laugh, because in the Friends world... Those writers have handed Chandler a happy ending. A life with Monica and their children away from Manhattan, but forever connected to their lifelong friends, Ross, Joey, Phoebe and Rachel. Life isn't scripted, at least not by us. Sitcoms resemble real life, but our lives are messier and more complicated. Our jokes are aren't as funny. And sometimes it's just tragic. The Chandler Bings don't get the monikers and the happily ever afters. Sometimes the Chandler Bings die young and alone and no one laughs. But the real human Perry did what one senses the fictional Chandler Bing would not or could not do. Turn to God for help. A year before his death, he wrote in his memoir that at his lowest ebb, he experienced God's presence and love, saying that for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. Maybe it sounds cliched. But for those of us with a Christian faith, what he experienced is not a surprise, but a wonderful reality. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen allowed. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined. (laughs) 